This is probably a very familiar passage to many of us. And I just want to take a quick moment or two to read through Peterson's translation of it in the message as well. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you're working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone regardless, the good, the bad, the nice, the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anyone can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out of your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're continuing to journey our way through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And we've come to this part now where we're looking at um, this kind of Jesus' teaching in terms of what it means to live this radical life that he has called us to. So this morning, I want us for a moment to think about what makes a great story. This morning, when you are at home and you have your nose stuck in a book, what is it that keeps you turning the pages? I suppose during the week I was thinking about this, and one good technique that I've seen many authors use is they zig exactly when you're expecting the story to zag. For example, pretend for a moment that you're reading a love story. I know for some of us that might be more of a stretch than others. Just imagine this morning that you've seen Tom and Laura initially meet over coffee. You've flicked through the pages watching their relationship grow and develop. There comes a crisis in that story, but they survive and come out stronger. Just when you think things are going from strength to strength, Tom, out of the blue, decides to join the army and is sent to Iraq. You're raging with the author because you thought they'd be great together. But what do you do next? You simply have to turn the page to figure out what happens next. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yes, Jesus, that's right. But when the Romans invade our villages, can we take a life? But I say unto you, do not resist an evildoer. Really? I didn't see that coming. 
You have heard it said, love your, enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yes, Jesus, that's right. But what comes after hate? Because whatever that feeling is, that's exactly what I feel now. But I say, love your enemy. You sure about that, Jesus? Because that doesn't seem right. But he is sure. Because it's the news that he came to announce. It's the story that he was born to tell. Once upon a time, it might have been okay to meet violence with violence. Maybe it seemed like there was no choice. Once upon a time, maybe it was okay to demonize one's opponents, to break life down to the simplest, smallest categories, to draw a line, to divide between us and them, between good guys and bad guys, between cowboys and Indians. But that was then. This is now. That was before the realm of God arrived in person, before the rules changed. There are. There are old stories about eyes and teeth, about good guys and bad guys, but they are far too easy. They are far too convenient. They are far too simple. In this section on the Sermon on the Mount, we see the climax of Jesus' reinterpretation of the law. The two themes of the section is Jesus' teaching both about the law of retaliation and about the law of loving your neighbor and hating your enemy. As we've seen time and time again, Jesus is all about the cause and the effect. Jesus is all about bringing clarity. Jesus is all about, you have heard it said, I say, open your ears, there's more. This section this morning is all about the delivery from the cycle of retaliation and all about how we react when we are wronged. Think for a moment about things that anger you. Maybe that car that pulls out in front of you at the middle of the roundabout and cuts you up or that driver that seems to take great pleasure in kind of blocking the yellow box junction in the middle of the road. I have to admit that I am one of those such drivers. I find it extremely hard uh, to get out of Elmwood Avenue onto the Malone Road to come to the office. So quite frequently I find myself just cutting through and hoping that the lights will change quickly enough that I get through before there is even more people honking their horns at me. And I'm sure in those moments that the people in those other cars maybe wish that their car could turn into some kind of mobile rocket launcher and annihilate my little car off the road. When someone does us wrong, we want revenge. Greg Carey suggests that most of us in the church try to explain away the words of Jesus one way or another. We could this morning, when getting to this section in the Sermon on the Mount, say, well, Jesus is really just setting forth a set of values to which his disciples should aspire. They're impossible, but that's the point, because by striving towards them, we live better than we would have without them. Or we might say that Jesus' words throughout the Sermon on the Mount reveal the impossibility of human righteousness and so prepare us for the grace that God offers to us. Or we might say that, well, Jesus was probably just speaking to his disciples as individuals. 
in our modern world with its complex relationships and global economics and violent military threats. His advice simply doesn't hold. In other words, it was okay for them, but in our complex world, it doesn't just really work. Or, or we might say that Jesus was just offering pragmatic advice to empower the oppressed. When you can't force people to treat you justly, you can expose the injustice of the situation. When striking back will only get you hurt, confront the aggressor without retaliating. Gandhi, an example of this. Martin Luther King Jr., an example of this. Mother Teresa, an example of this. But we're probably sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm no Gandhi. I'm no Luther with a dream. I'm no Mother Teresa. We have to live here and now, day after day, year after year, in a world which preaches, look after yourself. Those who don't end up last. Jungle rules, you know. In the boardrooms, in the business meetings in this town, the caricature of naivety is the suggestion probably that we all need to get on with each other. And perhaps while we're doing that, we could sit together, hold hands and sing Kumbaya and everything will be all right. But on the street, on the street, we know that anyone who lives that way, anyone who asserts themselves, who doesn't assert themselves in an aggressive way or a pushy way will be left behind. You can't survive in business and turn the other cheek. You can't maintain superpower status as a nation unless you outarm and outspend your enemy. The only logical conclusion is that Jesus lived at some higher level of existence than we do. How else could he have come up with such an illogical set of suggestions for living? So we rationalize. Like you'll have to forgive him. He just gets carried away sometimes. All compassion you know, all gushy about the goodness in people's hearts, all soft in the middle about that little spark of God in everyone. We have to forgive him that. It doesn't pan out in real life. We all know that Jesus was half human and half divine, so he's not really fully like us at all, is he? Tom Wright, didn't think I would ever do this, Tom Wright tells the story of a father who had to go away from his young family for a few days in business. He was anxious about how things would go in his absence, so he had a word with his eldest son, who was nine at the time. When I'm away, he said, I want you to do what I would normally do around the house and do it for me. The father had, of course, in mind things like keeping the house clean, washing the dishes, taking out the bin, and helping his mother if she needed anything. When the father returned from his trip, he asked his wife what the son had done. Well, she said it was very strange. Right after breakfast, he made himself another cup of coffee, went into the living room, turned the music up, read the newspaper for half an hour, and then scolded his sister for not picking up her toys. It seems that the son fundamentally misunderstood who his father was. And there are undoubtedly times that we misunderstand who our father is. And we misunderstand what God is asking us to do. We make the mistake of thinking that God relates to the world the way that we do. Punishing evildoers and hating all those that do wrong things. This 
is a very easy mistake to make in a culture that is dominated by the exercise of power. Strength and power in our world are shown by launching missiles, announcing threats, firing rockets across the border, dropping bombs on enemy targets. Strength and force seem to go together today, just as it did in the time of Jesus. But, but, Jesus talks cheeks, Jesus talks miles, and Jesus talks garments. The cheek, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, rather than hitting them back or hitting them even harder, as is contemporary practice in relation to response to attacks, turn the other cheek and require them to strike you on the other cheek. Because to turn the other cheek is to refuse submission and to force that person into the shameful action of hitting you again. The goal of this action is to bring the shame on the one who is doing the evil and to demonstrate that it is wrong. The garment, the practice that Jesus recommends, is a radical, non-violent courtroom demonstration. If a poor person was sued for their garments in the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, it forbid the taking of that person's last piece of clothing. It was strictly required that that garment was returned at night. Jesus then in his teaching this morning is recommending that if a rich person sues a poor person for their next to last garment, Jesus says, give them the last as well. In other words, strip and require the rich person to experience the shame of reducing a person to having no clothes at all, and thereby to actually break the law themselves. The carrying of a soldier's baggage or going the extra mile. The enemies of the ancient Near East travel by foot, and one of the most hated practices was to require the people in the lands they were passing through, and most times conquering, to carry their rucksacks for them. These rucksacks could weigh between 75 and 85 pounds at a time. In order to limit this practice and the resentment of subject peoples, the Roman government required that a soldier would only require someone to carry that pack for one mile. If then someone was required to carry it one mile and carried it two, as Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, that also is a violation of Roman law. It was an extension of the logic of domination, and it put the soldier at risk of sanction by his commanders. So, okay, you require me to carry your pack one mile, I'll carry it two, and therefore put you in a position of having violated Roman law and even common sense justice. The Sermon on the Mount here and elsewhere is a portrait of the very heart of God, one who loves the unlovable, one who comes among us in Christ, one who suffers our worst and rises to forgive us. Turn the other cheek, give the cloak Go another mile, land, love the enemy, because it is how God loves. During the week, I was reading about a musician who comments that at different times in his life, he had played both in churches and in bars. 
And he slowly realized that to some degree, there was similarity between the two. Because each kind of setting that he played in had a set of regulars, if you will, who were looking for meaning, carrying out a set of rituals of sorts, hoping to find purpose and hoping to find something to make sense of the pain of life. At first glance, the musician comments, it might seem that church is a better place to find hope than the bottom of a bottle, because every day alcoholism and drug abuse destroys families, ruins careers, and wrecks communities. But on the other hand, he noticed theological beliefs and misunderstandings have been blamed for divisions, divorces, and wars all around the world. True, alcohol feeds a different fire than pietism, but neither a drunk or a hypocrite look very good in the daylight. If people later today, people tomorrow, are finding more grace on display in their local bar than they are from people in the church, surely we've really mucked up this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that to love your enemy is to go counter-cultural to the way the world works. When we care for our enemy, we are breaking the laws of the world. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. If you only love those who love you, what reward have you? If you only greet friends, what more are you doing than others? We love our friends, but we don't need Jesus to teach us that. Jesus is the true nonconformist, going against the grain. This morning, we shouldn't and cannot try to explain away the difficult words of Jesus. Like it or not, difficult or not, impossible or not, they are an imitation of the ways of God and a way for us to get closer to God and what Jesus was all about. Maybe, maybe in this teaching that we've read about turning cheeks, about giving garments and going extra miles, maybe just for a moment Jesus was ahead of his time by describing what Lorenz has described as the butterfly effect. The idea that a beating of a tiny butterfly's wing on the Atlantic coast can cause a tsunami in the Pacific, showing that the smallest of things can have the largest of consequences. When we turn the other cheek, when we give to the one who begs, when we love our enemy, we do something the consequences of which are immeasurable because they go against the grain. They go against the teaching of the world around us, and they move us and the world a little bit closer to God each time it happens. This teaching in Matthew 5 this morning is all about practicing the habit of replying to an insult by showing dignity and love for your enemy. Love your enemies. Pray for them. If someone takes your coat, give them your cloak as well. I suppose if we were to think about Jesus and his teaching, we can follow the rest of his life and we can find that he really then did lay his teaching on the line with his death. Stripped naked, 
his coat and cloak taken from him and bartered over him by soldiers. He died without a friend to save him, blessing his enemies in the midst of his agony, praying for those who were putting him to death because they didn't know what they were doing. He put his life and his body where his teaching is. In fact, his teaching was his life, and that was where he put his body. And if this morning we are to follow him, we must struggle imperfectly towards the perfection that he described in the teaching we have read today. He has urged us to be complete and to be finished, to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And it all flows from this, loving your enemies, being complete and inclusive in your love, living a life of love, as Ken would have said, as I see the banner every day as I come into the office and sit at my desk, live a life of love. Because if we don't, what really are the options? Gandhi has said that an eye for an eye, well, that really would leave the whole world blind. But if we loved our enemy, if we loved those who we find it hard to love, if we loved those who hurt us and wrong us, if we loved those who try to drag us down and hurt us over and over and over again, well then we get to show just a little bit of how that grace of God is working in our lives, how God is challenging us to live counterculturally, and how he is calling us to live out the teachings that we find in the sermon on the mount. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again we come before you realizing the challenge of your word, the challenge of your teaching, and the challenge of your love towards us. We thank you for that love, and we pray that you would take us from here today not only to love those who it's easy to love, but to love those who have maybe hurt us, to love those who have maybe done us wrong, to love those who so often seem to be on our back. Help us to love our enemy. Help us to go that extra mile. Help us, as your children, to live a life of love in the situations and settings that you have called us into. Help us take these words that we find in the Sermon on the Mount and make them a daily reality as we go about our everyday lives. In your name we pray as always. Amen.